What's up, fam? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And today I bring you <laughs> an audio exclusive podcast. Yes, I laugh at that because it's only audio because I messed up the video. I tried recording at a really high bit rate to make the video quality better. But what really happened was I recorded at so high of a bit rate that my computer, my toaster of a computer, couldn't handle it. So, and I'm screwed. Not even my buddy's $10,000 Mac can handle the file size of this interview. I know it's been crazy, but I'm glad I can at least get the audio out. This interview is with Noel St. Harden. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. No, I just messed up your name as I'm recording this, but, <laughs> but it was, it was honestly a really good interview. We sat down, we talked at length for over an hour and a half, almost two hours about his time in New York, all the really cool people he met his life as a professional fashion illustrator, and then transitioning to a professional painter. Overall, just a really fascinating interview and I had a really great time sitting down with him. Really think you guys are gonna enjoy this. Also, um, I'm gonna be trying to put out more content now that this whole quarantine thing is happening with coronavirus. Um, hope you guys are staying safe out there, um, but we all need something to do to entertain ourselves. So hopefully I can get out more content for you guys. But anyways, enjoy. You can always watch more interviews on the YouTube channel. Um, that's always cool as well. All right, peace, enjoy. That's the angle. That's the podcast. What's up? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And in this podcast, I'm joined with Noel. What's going on? Oh, not much. Thanks for having me. I didn't do your whole name because I, I, just, I just blanked for a second. And yeah. I also didn't want to pronounce it wrong. Could you? What is it? It's Noel. It's Noel Sinjin Hamden. See, I'm so glad. What I didn't a mouthful. Say, I'm so glad I didn't say that. It's not my real name. My real name's John Smith. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to have like a brand name. I, I have a cooler sounding name. Yeah. Bruce Allen. Sounds great, huh? It does. You know? Yeah, it's like it's like the, you know, the podcast DJ Bruce MC. Allen. I yeah. could see you doing the Oscars one of the one of these days. You know, or the Grammys. You never know. If a podcaster got to host the Oscar or the Grammys, I think we'd be in a whole different world. I think it'd be awesome. I think I'd crush it, dude. That'd be so you would. Sick. I think I'm tired of seeing like, you know, famous people or you know, what's his name? What's that other English guy that annoys everybody? He uh, just did the Oscars. I don't know. I don't watch that stuff. But Oh, yeah, me neither. Jimmy Fallon's an annoying guy, I think, yeah. of being and hosting Oscars. They get the snarky English guy that was in the original office. And Maybe you could host it. You got the accent yeah, for it. Yeah. You know? I could insult everybody. It'd be easy. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I know who you're talking about. Um, he did like a thing about don't talk about your political views. What was his yeah. name? This is bad. I, I can't remember. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, he went up there and he gave like a snarky sort of. Yeah, I saw a, a little clip of and everybody was like grinning painfully yeah. and like, don't pick on me. I know. I thought it was interesting because that's all they do when they get on stage. Or they just kind of like share their political views, like use that platform, you know? Yeah, if they're going to do it, it's like fair play, right? You can't have it one way you know it's got to be both ways if you can't give it out you mm -hmm. know they wouldn't want me hosting because i'd go up there and be like all right guys everyone follow my podcast <laughs> yes Just plug it on tv okay i'm gonna have to move these cookies it's gonna be hard to talk yeah. and eat cookies all right but yeah. it's cool we can leave them there all right no worries. just the temptation mm. like i just can gave you, in can you handle it bruce no dude i'm the worst with sweets especially late at night after i've like smoked a little weed oh my god that that's like during the day i'm fine but after like that day of being big and you're at home, you just ate dinner. Bro, I am the worst sweet munchie, dude. Like the worst sweet munchies. There's nothing you can do about that. We oh. used to, when I was at college and we'd have to work late, 
Um, a lot of times we'd have a um, like a brief to finish. You'd get like a week and you'd have to hand in all your drawings and everything in your boards in a week. And you'd never have enough time. So you'd have to design and do everything in a week. So usually the last two nights, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, we'd stay up all night. And there was my, myself and two friends on the same course. And we'd go over to one of our you know, apartments and we'd work all night, blast the music. That sounds about right. Smoke some, uh, you know, kind herb. And yeah. then like around two o'clock in the morning, be like, oh, we're out of food. So we'd have, to run to, <laughs> we'd have to run to the gas station down the street. And it was like, you know, nighttime, so they wouldn't let you in. So we'd be like, okay, that bag of chips. But no, no, left, left, down, up, over. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that bag of chips, you know, that bag of cookies. <laughs> so we'd come back with like 15, you know, that's things, hilarious. Cookies, cookies, chips. I think all the kids these days, I think they might, I think they do Adderall instead of weed to stay, to study. Oh, really? At least I did in college. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a thing. If I smoked weed, I was falling asleep at two in the morning. Yeah. I was sitting up to friend with the prescription. That's true. No, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Like that, that's <laughs> way more work for us. Maybe we were just on adrenaline because we knew that if we failed, we'd probably be out. So it was like the fear factor. Oh no. Yeah. I, 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 the levels of procrastination I had in college were just insane. When, but when you went to school though, was that in New York or was that? Uh, no, it was in England. I was in England. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so now we can actually start talking about the juicy stuff. I was all just like get the cookies out of our, chi- mm. out of our, out of our teeth and everything. Yeah. So what I find interesting about you is that you came... Let me silence my phone. Oh, my God. I'm trying to make profound statements and shit. Well, I guess since we all know I have a text message, it's about my friend telling me how she hooked up with some guy and he came fast. <laughs> <laughs> Stop Woo. the presses. That's way more important. Yeah. Can you text her back? Yeah. It's my Does friend she have Sophie. pictures? No. <laughs> she has videos. Oh, that's right. Sorry. So 20th century. <laughs> so shout out, Sophia. Glad you got it in. Yes. <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay. But seriously, the thing about you I find so interesting is that, at least from, from, from off the top, is that you came here as... You, came, you recently came to D.C. and you yeah. somehow found an amazing studio, which is great like one of the best studios i think you can publicly get in dc when in this in this building yeah but i just love the idea because it just makes me feel better that someone like an artist like you came from new york and moved to dc because i've met so many people who are in dc who have that sort of fantasy about moving to new york and living yeah. the artist's life and that there's some like weird pot of gold at that rainbow yeah it's like what what are you doing here like why'd you leave an awesome city like that man um Change is good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say that. You know, people do have that perception. And, and you know, my mother lives in England and, and her friends are always, even though I've, I lived there for 30 years, oh, it must be amazing that he lives in New York. You must go there all the time and do all the sites. And it's like, well, yeah, I've been there a lot, lots of times, but you don't go there every year and go to the Empire State Building or uh, Statue of Liberty. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, the thing is, especially today is, you know, every commercial, every commercial, every uh, movie, every TV show, it seems like, is made in New York or Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, Brooklyn is like supposedly the place, you know. Um, so people have a perception of that. But at the end of the day, it's still like any city or anywhere you live, you, 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 it, it just becomes your life. You know, you get up. You get ready, you go to work or whatever you do, and you get on the train, and there's all the stuff that you have to deal with in between. Um, 
And, you know, yeah, it's an interesting city, but I think there's a lot, lots of interesting places in the world that I've been to. How old were you when you, when you first went to New York? Did you, because you mentioned that you went to art school. Did you go to art school and then move to New York right afterwards? I did. I, um, I did a fashion degree at Kingston University in uh, England, just south of London. Um, and basically while I was doing my final uh, collection, um, a company from New York was looking at, you know, had come looking for people to work at the company and uh, they liked my portfolio and they offered me a job. It was a French company called Fashion Dossier in New York. And basically they did uh, trend forecasting and retail prediction and we'd make these lookbooks. And this was back in the, right before computer technology was really big for stuff like that. So oh. basically we do it all by hand. Um, so basically I did my collection, I finished, you know, school in England and then I moved to New York in August of 89. I was 21. So you went to school to be a fashion designer? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 I have a BA in, uh, fashion. That's crazy. And it's interesting that you went, you're essentially, we're between the two meccas of fashion. I mean, at least isn't England one and New York is at least the American one. Yeah. And school wise, you know, if you, if you look I mean, I haven't looked in a while, but the top two schools in England at the time were St. Martin's and Kingston. Mm -hmm. um, and then in New York, you've got FIT and Parsons, and it's sort of a similar thing. Um, so Kingston's a very commercial school in that it taught you how to go out into the business world of fashion and, you know, get a job and, and be able to do it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, St. Martin's is a little more avant-garde and, and people that are looking maybe to be designers on their own or start their own label. You know, people like John Galliano and mm. uh, Alexander McQueen went to um, St. Martin's. But what you'd find, pe people, graduates from Kingston, you might not know their names, but you'd know their work because a lot of them ended up being the designers at clothing companies or fashion houses and they'd be like the head designer. And I know, you know, I had lots of friends at the time. Daniel Escher in Paris was, was a guy from Kingston, uh, DKNY, um, Liz Claiborne. Um, you went to school with all those people? Well, not those people, but the people that ended up designing for them, Calvin oh, wow. Klein. So you might not know the, 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 the people that I knew, but they were the head designers at all those uh, companies. I see you're saying it's like the two schools, like one kind of made the like superstars, the names, and the other one yeah. kind of made the people who worked for them. Who did all, yeah. So if you see like, you know, Calvin Klein designs you know calvin doesn't sit there doing all the designs he sits in an office and he has a bunch of people sitting in front of him who do all the design and he goes yeah I like that one no don't like that one you know it was at that stage of his career where everybody else does the work you know um and my friend clive um who was in the year above me he when he graduated that's who he worked for calvin klein yeah whoa yeah so um you know dkny um there's a guy the year below me that ended up working at uh, DKNY. So it was it would be like that. You wouldn't know their names, but they're the they're the clothes that you wear. That's um, wicked. Did you work for any big names, or did you go to school with any like big names that we know now? Um, I when I after I worked for Fashion Dossier, I did that for a year, um, and then I worked for a like a what they call private label. So you do like small bunch of different labels for different companies mm. and one of the ones uh, I worked for was uh, Oscar de la Renta 
Whoa. who was a fairly big uh, New York designer. And uh, we would do sort of like the women's wear separates line for him. And we did a bunch of other smaller lines as well. Um, there was a shirt line, like a woman's shirt line called Nick Nick. And uh, they were sort of, they were all silk and they had prints on them. Um, and I would do all the, the, the print design and sort of look like Hermes a little bit, that sort of feel. It's crazy that you mentioned you're doing all this by hand. Like this was pre Photoshop and Illustrator. Oh yeah, like this was all on paper, right? Like this was all on paper. That's crazy. From trees. I'll tell you, last time I wrote something and erased it yeah. with a pencil. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we do all day. I mean, with the with Fashion Dossier, it was um, what we do is we travel. So, for example, I, I came to New York. I was here for a week, and then we were sent to Japan for 10 days, and we had to shop the, shop the stores in Japan. That's so sick. So we'd walk around, and we'd make sketches and take photos, but all secret because you're not really like, you don't go into a, you know, like, uh, you know, Ismiyaki and say, oh, is it all right if I take photos of all yeah. your clothes? And they go, yeah, that's great. No problem. Can I see what the insides of your, of your yeah. garments look like so I could copy that? Yeah. yeah. So we would go in, Little and you'd spies. have to have, yeah, you'd have to have like a sort of a good memory, you know, um, so we'd go in, and we'd look around and then we go outside and we have a little sketchbook and we'd make little notes and then somebody else would go in and secretly take photos and stuff like that. We'd never use the photos, but we use them for details and stuff. So when we got back to New York, then we'd get all the sketches and we'd put together the the book, but we'd have to do it from scratch. So we'd have templates, but uh -huh. we'd draw out in pencil. So say it was a shirt and it had like a nice collar and cuff detail. So you draw out the shirt in pencil, then you'd ink it all. And then you would put letra set. I don't know if anybody knows what letra set is. It's, no. it's basically say it had a, uh, a print or a pattern on it, say like a jacquard or say like a hound's tooth or something. Mm -hmm. There was a company called letra set and they would, they would come on these big sheets and it was um, see-through, um, but the print would be in black on, on this sort of see-through plastic and it was uh, sticky on the back so basically if you wanted to do a design you would cut this out and you would stick it on to the where the shirt was or where the part of the shirt that you wanted to show the design and that was how you did prints and stuff like that or you draw them by hand I mean if it was like a detail print but if you had Whoa. something that was like stripes or something you would use this thing called letra set so Jesus. You, yeah, it was kind of crazy. You know, we'd have <laughs> all these like ones so and you'd like flick through like books of like, oh, we need like a, you know, something that looks kind of like a, you know, like a sweater, you know, like some wool or something. So you give something that had a little bit of like uh, texture on it, stuff like that. And then we'd have to, I do all the typesetting. I write it all out by hand and then we send it to somebody. They'd print it all up. They'd send it back to me. I'd cut it out by hand and we'd stick the book down by hand and then we'd send it to the printer and they would send us a, you know, a test copy and we'd go through and see if there were any typos. And then we'd use whiteout and stuff like that if there were anything on the pages. And then we send that one back, the final master, and then they would print the book. That's crazy. And so this was all kind of like the first gigs you were doing when you were in New York. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, I got there on a, a Friday. I worked the following week for a week and then I flew to Japan on the, the Saturday for That's 10 days, wild. came back, put this book together, spent about maybe two or three weeks doing that, then went out again. I think we went to, um, where did I go after that? Oh, um, 
What was it like though? Like, like you going to New York as a young fashion designer, were you, were you aspiring to be like a big name? Like what were you, what were you thinking at that point? Cause I feel like that would have been my idea. I would have been like, yeah, let me go to New York, crush this, put my name on the map, I'm a big fashion designer, do, do New York fashion week. Yeah. I mean, originally, um, sort of my, the thing that I really wanted to do was like, um, high-end sportswear, like womenswear, sportswear, like Italian sportswear, like Max Mara, um, which was a company that was popular at the time. And it's sort of um, elegant, but every day, like you could wear it to work and stuff like that, but but a little bit above like, you know, um, you know, buying at a regular store. Um, you'd probably find it at places like... Um, what, ex- know, what, like what exactly is sportswear? What do you know? mean by sportswear? Well, that's what they, they termed it, but it's like dress, like and for women's wear especially. Um, um, sort of, you know, stylish separates that some that, like a businesswoman would wear at work. So mm. maybe like, you know, pants with a with a sweater or a blouse and then a jacket that matches. Ah, um, okay. And like, you know, a, a very expensive wall or something. So like the, the outfit might cost you know, a couple of thousand dollars, but, yeah, I mean, you know. It's fashion. You got to pay yeah. for it, you know. That was back there. There was the, you know, the, the the tail end of the 80s, early 90s when people were still thinking like, you know, fashion was like that, you know, where you'd see people wearing stuff, like I said, like Isimiyaki or Yoji Yamamoto or Comme des Garçons, you know, where it's like, I don't know, shirts like $300 even back then. That's a lot of money, you know, $400. <laughs> That's crazy. $2,000 for a suit. That stuff blows my mind even now. There was a Dior pop-up up at City Center. Have you been there? No. It's like where all the name brands like that are. Yeah. And Dior had this sort of pod popped up for the new collection. And I was like, oh, let me go check it out. And then they had this huge uh, collab robot statue that they did with this insane Japanese famous designer. He does like the metallic people with the eyes and the kind of like cyborgs. I don't remember his name. But anyways... Yeah, I think I've seen those. I don't know who I don't know his name, but yeah, yeah, I've his seen work's them. super yeah. iconic. Yes, and I was like, I was in there, I was like, oh, this is all so lovely. And then I, I looked at his shirt. I'm like, oh, what's this shirt? Probably like hundred bucks. Yeah, five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Wait, I yeah. think I can ac- actually ask you this question: Is that justified? Like, is that justified for him to for like Dior to be charging like three to five hundred for a T-shirt? No, <laughs> am, am I missing something there? Like, is there like a design element that I am completely oblivious to? Um, it's about. Telling people that, you know, it's it's like, you know, when you see people driving, you know, I do a lot of driving now that I'm here and I see people <laughs> yeah, driving. Welcome. In, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Um, and you see people in these, you know, super expensive brand name cars, you know, you know the type. And it's like, it's a status thing. It's not actually about the car. It's about, look what I have. And I think it's the same thing because mm-hmm. somebody said, oh, that's a nice T-shirt. Where'd you get that? And you said, oh, Dior. You're saying it costs a lot of money, but you're saying Dior. And that's, you know, or Chanel or, um, you know, Prada or whatever it, it may be. It's like, it's a status thing. So they can charge that. I mean, it's it's weird when you see stuff like T-shirts it's one thing, but I mean, if if you're looking at a suit by somebody, but that like feels that, way that's, different. That's different, even yeah. though they're really expensive. It's it is well made. I mean, it's not off the rack, you know. I mean, it's 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 not complete custom, but it's really really well made, and it's not going to fall apart the first time you uh, 
take to the dry cleaners. You know? Yeah, I mean, like like a piece like that, or like a suit, that feels justified for be a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, something, something crazy yeah. like that. But for something like t-shirts, like is there is there yeah. sex appeal sewn in on this shirt? Like is the ink made out of some something I don't know no. about? Like is, is there some special? No. Pro- okay, well you make me feel better about not doing any yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and especially today where you look at the, you know consumption and and the way the world is, it's like. It's sort of a little bit difficult to justify, if, you know. If you're spending two hundred dollars on a t-shirt, the you maybe of, have to think about some other stuff that's going on. Yeah, the rest of your life problems probably aren't that big of a deal, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. That's kind of crazy. So, so, so you're in New York, young fashion designer. Yeah, and I, I think this is cool. It's interesting that we're kind of starting with like your backstory because. I know you as the artist who does these amazing like 10 by 10 foot works in your studio, but it's really cool learning about your fashion history. So, but you're a young dude in New York. What is that? What was that like? And at what point did you get interested into to art and stuff like that? Um, I'd always been interested in painting. In fact, um, before I went to Kingston in England, what, what you do, if you're going to do art or something of that nature, instead of when you finish your A-levels, um, which you take in the UK and then based on those, uh, you, you know, you then apply to college or university. Mm-hmm. And obviously, depending on what you get with your A-levels, that depend, that can say where you, where you can go or, you know, whether you can get in. Um, but in art, what you do is you do a one-year, what they call art foundation course. And on that, you do every kind of art. So you do photography, graphic design, fine art, sculpture, Whoa. printing, you know, anything you can think of you do in that year. And that's to sort of give you a broad cross-section to see, you know, what you really excel at or what you're interested in. And I did that course and my tutors wanted me to be a painter. They said, you know, you, you know, your, your painting work is really good. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I kind of like painting. It's kind of fun. And then, uh, a guy came to give us a talk from Kingston, this guy called Marcus Brown, who was on the course. And he gave the talk and I was, I mean, it sounded fantastic. I was like, this is exactly what, I'd always been into fashion and clothes and stuff like that. And uh, I'd done a little bit of, you know, sewing and stuff like that. But um, I, I just went to the talk and I was like, this is it, this is what I wanna do. Whoa. So I came out of the, the, the talk and I went and told the teachers, yeah, I want to go to Kingston. And they were like, ha, ha, that's brilliant. You're nuts. Oh, it's yeah. like that. It's kind of yeah. like Yale or Harvard kind of thing. Yeah. They were like, you, you'll never get in. Oh, whoa. And I was like, but that's what I want to do. They're like, if you apply, you've thrown away your um, application because if you don't get in, which you probably won't, um, you have to wait till the next year and then you're up against everybody that's a year younger than you. Oh, Damn. So they were like, seriously, like, don't do it. And I was like, oh, you know. Um, but I really felt like inside it was like, you know when you know. And I was totally committed. Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply to Kingston. In fact, um, my uncle was an architect. And um, he lived in Manchester too. So I was like, well, you know, I'll call Uncle Keith see what he has to say. So I called him up and said, oh, you know, told him the whole story. He's like, yeah, yeah bring your portfolio over, no problem. <laughs> um, so I go over to the like house. Yeah. Oh, he looks at the portfolio. I'm sweating bullets, you know, and he doesn't say anything. He's looking through all the work. And at the end he goes, yeah, don't worry about it. Apply, no problem. He's like, yeah, you'll get in. Damn. He's like, uh, I don't think you have any worries. Whoa. So I was like, awesome. 
okay. That's got to be reassuring. Yeah. So I was like, cool. So I applied and I got in. <laughs> and I came in, you know, very nonchalantly when I'd got the, uh, you know, the letter. And I walked in and they were like, oh, so how's it going? I was like, oh, good. Oh, I just kind of riveted yeah. in the face. Kind of like, I, was, I got in. Yeah, I was like, oh, by the way, got into Kingston. <laughs> that must have been a big deal for everyone at the school. They're kind of probably sitting there shitting bricks, no? Yeah. Like the tutors said that, you know, literally picked the jaw up <laughs> off the ground. I was like, I just didn't, I didn't say I told you so, but I was just like, you know. That, that whole concept that you even just said about how they kind of give you an aptitude test, like a, an arts aptitude test mm-hmm. and see what you're best at. That's wild. We don't have anything like that here in America. Yeah, it's I've really never interesting. Heard that. It's like a weird sort of selection kind of thing. It, yeah, it's not not just for. It's more for you. It's uh, you know they're not sort of grading you oh, as you go along. Okay. You know, it's not like SATs or something like that. You know, it's maybe it is now. I mean, like I said, I mean it's a long time since I was at college, but um, um, basically the 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 reason they do it, and I think it's a really good idea, is that. You have an art program at school mm. and you do certain things, but you don't get to do a lot of those other things that are expensive. Like a lot of schools don't have a photography department That's or, a, you know, or, you know, print screen printing and stuff like that. So you're doing basic stuff, you know, so that gives you um, the ability to try all those things and see what you're good at or what you're interested in so or what you excel at you know that's so cool i love that concept i wish we had something like that in america where kids could just sort of like taste these different ideas and different kinds of mediums because i you really don't know until you try it oh it's amazing and it's funny because when you go through school you know everybody goes to school and like oh man you know yeah school sucks you know um but you when you do that, it's like you, you can't wait to get there because it's, it's like that's how, that's how learning should be. There should be this aspect of trying stuff out. Yeah, and what you like. I mean, obviously, you need to know the basics as well. But as I know there's some sort of schools that are, over the years have done a variation of that where in the morning or the afternoon, like you do basic lessons one part of the day and then the other part of the day, they do a little bit more free form. Mm. Um, but, you know, obviously you get the basics in reading, reading, writing, arithmetic kind of thing. But that concept I think is really good, you know, because it really gives you an input into your own development or what you want to be. It makes you think about that as well. And also in England at that time, they do this thing called 13 plus, when you were coming up to 12, 13, and you basically had to sort of take these exams, and based on that, that would give you an idea of what sort of O-levels you would take or what you would need to take if you wanted to do certain things. So even at like 12 or 13, they're making you think about, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? That's interesting. You know, so um, it's not set in stone, but it gives you a really good foundation. Well, even just the self-awareness levels, like I think that's such an important element of just being a complete person is just self-awareness and knowing what you're good at and what you suck at. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got, you got to know, right? You do have to know. Your weakness, you know, like um, Clint says, a man's got to know his limitations. (laughs) So, okay. So what was it like being in New York? You were in, you were like a teen living in New York in like what, the the eighties, nineties? I got there in 89. Yeah. Oh, wow. So in the deep mists of time. (laughs) <laughs> there was electricity back then. We did have phones, but they were connected to a wall. Uh, and you, 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 internet did not exist. <laughs> it 
It just about did. Yeah. I mean... Phone books were a thing. Yeah, they Woo. were. They were awesome. People actually call each other. They did. I remember I used to call people from the... Uh, there, was a, there was a call box on the corner. I lived at this... Um, I found a place on... I think it was in the Village Voice. Or was it the New York Times? Maybe it was the New York Times. And it was uh, a studio apartment in this building... And I went to have a look at it, and it was on 23rd and Lexington, and it had been a hotel at one point called the George Washington Hotel, and there were still people that lived in it, and it was sort of a long-term hotel. Mm, I see what you're saying, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of kind of weird mix of, like, people that had been there forever and then people like me who just got there. Um, and it was a tiny little room on the corner on the seventh floor, two windows, so it was great, and one on each side, so I had really good light. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was nice, but it was one room and a bathroom. What part of New York was this? Um, I guess it's sort of Murray Hill. Um, yeah, Murray Hill is that that area, I guess, would be called. Is that like Brooklyn or? No, uh, Manhattan. Oh, it's so, Manhattan. Yeah, it was, uh, so it was um, Lexington Avenue and 23rd Street. Wow. Um, so on sort of the east side of, uh, you know, that, that area, Murray Hill. So it was like the Manhattan before our modern Manhattan kind of thing. Oh yeah, there was a there was a little hotel around the corner that was basically an hourly hotel, uh, which was quite interesting to walk past at night coming home. Um, yeah, it's uh, the, definitely the old school New York. And I think when Rudolph Giuliani became mayor, he did this big thing where he started to close all these places down. It was called Quality of Life, mm-hmm. and I think one of the first places, and it was on the news that they closed, was that hotel. <laughs> I can imagine. For obvious reasons. Um, yeah, there was a lot of shenanigans going on there, obviously. Um, that was a really wild time, was the 89, the Rudy Giuliani area, because he really cleaned that, that, those, that yeah. those places up. I remember I was listening. Well, that was David Dinkins. When I got there, it was David Dinkins. Oh, it was him? Yeah. I mean, I was listening to this book by Malcolm Gladwell, and he, and he broke down how New York was cleaned up. Dude, it blew my mind. Yeah. And it all started with cleaning up the graffiti. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, that, at the end of the day, like that's how they essentially did it was by taking care of all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was from the ground up. Basically, had this whole concept, and obviously, it was something that you know, powers that be had had this idea of developing New York for many years. It's like we have the New York that you see now because they were thinking about it thirty years ago and like getting it ready to be able to do that kind of building mm. and get bring in that kind of investment. Um, but uh, yeah, when a lot of the um, there was a lot of delis in New York that were where you would go could go and buy weed and stuff like that, and you could tell which ones were and which ones were proper delis. Um, but basically, when they closed all those down, what they did is the signal was that they would they would shutter them and then they would put like a dumpster in front of the doorway, like one of those big metal ones that you couldn't move. And that was the signal to the neighborhood and everybody. It's like, okay, we're coming in and we're cleaning up. So every time you would see all these places closing down, it's like, we're coming through, you know, and it's like they basically went through the whole city, you know, like I said, start with the graffiti, then close down places like that, then start doing renovation, then start cleaning up. That's so nuts. So... And so you kind of you you lived in that you 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 saw that happening in as an artist in the city. I mean, I imagine you probably did a little bit of graffiti too. Uh, I never actually did, but I had a lot of friends that that, that <laughs> did, and one of them is now very uh, amazing artist in the UK um, called Pure Evil. Um, there's a guy that I went to college with, and he does uh, a lot of uh, interesting graffiti stuff. He has a gallery in Shoreditch in the UK. 
and he's a big graffiti guy. So he's like him and Banksy and that crew are all like, you know, mates and stuff. But um, yeah, he he was a big graffiti guy. I really wasn't, um, for, to be honest. I probably dodged, yeah. He probably dodged a couple of prison cells or, or handcuffs by not being in that. I did, yeah. I, had, I have a friend who's, um, he's a painter now. He does uh, sort of color field abstract work and he's from Czech Republic. And his story is sort of the story that you don't want to hear. He'd come to New York, obviously. He was a graffiti artist in, in Czech and came to New York because he wanted to experience being in New York and doing graffiti. And him and a friend were standing on a subway platform and he wasn't even doing any graffiti. And they had backpacks on. And I guess they looked, they had the look, the oh, style oh, yeah. of the way graffiti artists dress. And uh, two undercover cops came up to them and they were like, what's in your bag? Show us what's in your bag. And they were like, oh, no, you know. So they took the bag off and they inside, they, they opened it. And inside they had spray cans. Oh, no. So it's paraphernalia. So they oh, basically shit. arrested them. Oh. And uh, eventually you, they were let go. And I think they, they had to leave the country. And he said every t- this happened in like 2000. And he says every year he comes to the States, he has to go through immigration. It takes him like two or three hours to get through because they pull him aside. It's like it still happens today. That's so annoying. Yeah. Holy shit. So, uh, it's like, be it's careful like, out there. It's like as much as I love graffiti and street art, I do respect that whole cleaning up era that that, that happened. Like all that, the whole plan and all that stuff, it, it did kind of create this amazing city. It did. I mean, and I remember looking at books and, um, uh, you know, photography books of the graffiti on the trains and stuff. I'm thinking how amazing it was. Yeah. You know, like you said, I, was, I wasn't really into graffiti, like personally, but I loved that whole style and era, and especially the New York scene of that period. Like yeah. I like the music. So, you know, people like the, the old school sort of rap uh, guys from New York. Um, there was a band called Houdini who were really huge on that scene um, back in the day. And uh, they came to Manchester and they played at the Hacienda, which is a famous club, and they were amazing. And uh, they did a lot of breakdancing on stage. And one of the things they did, one of the guys in the middle of the, the song picks one of the other guys up, puts the guy on his head, and the guy spins around. That's a real New York And I was like, <laughs> blew my mind, you know. And they, they were from New York. And uh, so I was into the sound and the music and the, and the art, the graffiti. So... You know, I expected when I came here in 89 that I'd see all that, but they'd already started getting rid of it even by that point. Um, So you wouldn't really see those trains with the outside completely covered in graffiti. That that wasn't really a thing. Maybe in places like the Bronx, but not in downtown or the main part of Manhattan. You'd see it inside the cars. And what a lot of uh, people had moved over to was scratching. So they would scratch into the glass or onto the walls. Oh, so that way it was hard. You couldn't get it out. That's hardcore. Yeah. So that would that became sort of a big thing. Um, but I think a lot of the reason why they curtailed it really quickly is if you got caught doing it, you had to go and clean the trains. Ooh, so, and that is gross. Yeah. So you'd have to clean all the graffiti off and clean all the trains. That was part of the, you know, I think the community service stuff that you'd have. to Did do. you? catch that whole sort of Keith Haring Basquiat era or is that before you got there it was before I got there but it it was still around like the Keith Keith Haring store was was there I think it's even still there now um which is near Soho Mm -hmm. um not far from Houston Street 
But yeah, that vibe was still there. Kastar- Mark Kastabi, who's a famous artist at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a, a, um, a studio on the corner of Broadway and Houston, and it just said, it was like on the fifth floor, and it just said, Kastabi World. <laughs> and he was like, ooh. That's you know. wicked. Yeah, and I think he was one of those artists that talked a good game and, and sold a lot of people on work that he didn't actually create, but that was his thing. He was like, I don't make the art. I tell the people who work for me to do how to do the art and they do it. So uh, there was this big thing going on in New York at the time where that was sort of a thing. Where, where like there'd be like the guy in charge and he would kind of have people working and doing the art for him? Yeah, Jeff Koons is kind of the same. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, sort of similar. I'm going to get liable for this. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It, it, does, it does kind of seem like there's this level of artist brand or something that you mm. get to, even reference in the fashion world, where you have a team of people working on it for you. I think when you get to that level, you kind of have to because you you make you you have to make so much work because you're so popular and you're in so much demand. Mm-hmm. Physically, one person couldn't do that. Yeah. So, um, the people that work there are extremely talented artists, obviously, because they can do the work in the style of that artist. I mean, a lot of artists have assistants and stuff anyway because if they're painting and they need somebody to do the stretchers and prep the canvas and, and get everything ready that stuff takes a lot of time yeah so you know if you've got you know 15 orders and they're like say like my work is fairly big if you've got <laughs> you know two you know 15 8 by 10 feet that's a lot of surface to cover you i know? mean that's a lot of work to do on top of being that name or that brand you know yeah yeah so you do actually need that kind of help but the the thing with somebody like Kastabi, I think he was taking the sort of the Warhol concept, you know, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes and, you know, the sort of immediate thing where it's it's about the art, but it's about the concept. So, you know, like the, the Brillo pad screen prints or the Elvis screen prints mm-hmm. or the stuff that, that uh, Warhol was doing, it was sort of this, the pop art, the commercialism you know, throwing commercialism back at itself. Mm. Um, and I think that's what Kastabi and, the, and people that were doing that in the 80s were sort of thinking of, you know, they were coming out. It was part of their persona. It was like, I don't do the work. You know, I get somebody else to do the work. You're paying me to be Mark Kastabi. Ah, and yeah. they just rocked it. like they just Yeah, people loved it. They, they ate it up. It was the 80s, you know, I mean, it's like He'd American out, Psycho. <laughs> he was probably out at like Studio 54 and all that stuff like rocking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even Studio 54 was not around ah, okay. when I was there, but there were other clubs that had been around from that period, like Palladium, Mars, MK, uh, Red Zone, which I was able to go to, you know, and they sort of, closed over the next few mm-hmm. years but um yeah there was definitely that vibe on the on the club scene like mars i think it was mars was over in the meatpacking district and it was in the meatpacking district when it was meatpacking yeah and it was cd before, before and, it was cool yeah it was cool because it was an underground scene there and there was a lot of like weird little clubs um that you had to sort of know about but mars was huge it was like five floors <sighs> and every floor was a different kind of music that's sick and it was it was amazing and you literally it would it was like you'd see in in the movies or like in studio 54 you get out of a cab and you walk up and there'd be people standing outside and there'd be the the, the velvet rope and there'd be somebody there with a clipboard and if they saw you and you looked you know the way they wanted you to look for like, that club they'd point to you and go 
Come on in. <laughs> That's so cool. And then you'd, they'd open the, the thing and you'd walk straight in and everybody who's standing outside would be like, oh, man. You, you, know. you get the sweet outfit on. You get rocked right into the club. It's like, yeah. You look like, yeah, that's so sick. Yeah. I wish it happened more. Now they only do that for girls with big asses and stuff here in D.C. It's like, <laughs> oh, three girls, get in here. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, no matter how sick your fit is, you ain't getting in if you're a dude. You're getting in that line. Yeah. That's crazy. So did you ever have any run-ins with Cause? The artist? Uh, no, I did not. I, I think he was around when you were there, no? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You know, I was doing fashion at the time, and the, it was really cool, actually, because Soho at the time was actually a, a cool neighborhood. It was It was still developing, and a lot of the art galleries were in that area in Soho you know now it's Chelsea and, and Brooklyn and, and sort of Chinatown but back in in that period it was Soho you know there were mm. galleries and the artists lived and worked around there because it was affordable um, and they had big spaces um, but what they, you would do is like you would be walking around or you'd be in a club and people would come up to you and they would hand you a flyer and you would look at the flyer and it would say, okay, there's a gallery opening on Thursday, six to nine, free wine, free food. So we'd be like, yeah, yeah you know. Sweetest part. So we'd, we'd go and we'd bounce around these different galleries and stuff, getting free wine and free, you know, snacks and stuff. And then we'd go off afterwards and go to a club or something. But yeah, I mean, they really pushed like getting people to the to the galleries. And it wasn't... Obviously, there was, there was a lot of money about then because it was the 80s, but it wasn't this sort of exclusive, snobby, oh, it's art and it's just for the, you know, the elite or the intelligentsia. It was like, yeah, you know, get everybody in, you know, fill, fill the seats. Or let's say, uh-huh. in, say in England in the old day, bums on seats. Yeah. You know, it's like you want to fill the place up. You want to have a good energy, a good vibe. So that's what they would do. Have a DJ playing and like, stuff like that. It seems like a weird sort of, I, w- I don't I feel weird to say renaissance, but it seems like a very blossoming time for art at that time in the city if, if people are just welcoming you in like that i feel like now the new york galleries at least in my opinion from this viewpoint is that they seem kind of elitist now at least maybe some of the soho ones but back then it seems more of like a wild west where everyone's just trying to get people into it yeah no absolutely agree and i think that was one of the reasons why you know i liked that new york and the new york that we have now is is not this is not the same place it's a different place really um if you been around all those years from when I got there to now, you see the change. And, you know, it's evolution. You know, that's just the way things go in yeah. life. There's the, the, they change. Times change. But I think the energy that and why people, like you say, that live in D.C. or in other countries and they talk about New York and they have this perception of New York yeah. is because of that. It's because, and it was like that. People went to New York to make it like the song, you know, but it's that thing where you could literally go there with a few hundred dollars in your pocket or, you know, and a couple of bags and you could find a way to get started, you know, work in a bar or do something, you know, and work your way up because um, it was kind of cheap to live there. That first apartment that I had was $545 a month. That's it. That was it. In, in Manhattan. Yeah. And it was what that was yeah. one week's pay for me at the time. So it was like, <laughs> Yeah, no problem, right? That's amazing. Now it's five thousand. <laughs> yeah, it is five thousand for a two bedroom. Yeah, um, that's so or crazy. Maybe even some of these places are one bedroom. You know. Um, so but, what happened? Like, how did how did it become this? Well, I mean, I, I guess now it's like you clearly can't do that anymore. You clearly can't just show up with two bags and 
a, a part-time job or a job and, and make it now. I feel like in New York, I feel like that dream is kind of dissolved a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because meeting a lot of um, young people that come to the city, I mean, there's still a lot of people obviously coming in and doing that kind of thing. I meet a lot of musicians and artists uh, and people, writers and stuff that want to come to New York and, and do their thing, and it's a great place for doing it. But yeah, I wonder, and they do seem to struggle, and I think that's the main problem for a lot of them is just paying rent you know i mean even one bedroom's going to be a lot of money so obviously there's still like a lot of shares and stuff like that um and i think that's the way a lot of people do i have a friend who's a musician and he lives with three other people and they have a fairly decent sized apartment it's in brooklyn but in the basement they have set up as a small studio rehearsal recording space so those things do still exist it's just they're becoming you know a little bit more rare do you think it's still as fruitful as a place to go like do you, do you do you still think that someone early 20s with the dream of being a fashion designer or an artist or whatever do you think it's still worth the time to go to new york do you think it's still there for them or is it kind of like uh it's so 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 packed now um i think it's the same everywhere i think what changed it obviously is technology mm-hmm. um you know social media and the immediacy of uh being able to see what everybody else is doing, wearing, thinking all day, every day has changed people's perception of how things are. And, and, and obviously it makes it that, that sort of energy that you would feel back in New York in, in, in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s was that you didn't, you weren't worried about what everybody else was thinking or doing or looking online to see what was going on. Like, I don't think I had a TV for the first three years that I lived there, you know? So it's like, I didn't read papers, yeah. you know, I didn't stop and get the paper or if somebody said, Oh, this happened or, you know, golf, when golf once started, it's like, Oh, you go and buy a paper to see, Oh, you know, what, what was happening or whatever, but you weren't sort of tied into everything the way people are today. It's it, you had that ability to separate so Ah. if you were doing something and you were involved in something you know work play hanging out it was about other people and and being engaged of right there as opposed to like now i could look at someone on instagram and see what they're doing everywhere yeah exactly it's like the perception of what's going on yeah like i said i remember the as a friend of mine i used to go across the 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 payphone on the corner of uh, 23rd and lex and call him up and say oh what are you doing tonight you know it's like, and then you'd be like, oh, I've got something going on. You'd be like, okay, so, you know, oh, I don't have anything to do tonight, you know. So you go out to a bar or a club and meet some people, you know, meet some new people, you know, and that's how it sort of developed, you know. Um, you could do that. And in New York's that kind of place where... That, I miss that. I, I, I am so jealous of that, of people just not being in their homes as much and yeah. being out and just meeting people naturally, like just just mm. going to the places where they naturally want to go and meeting people in that sort of natural way where it's not this forced DM. It's kind of, mm. I met, I'm just saying, I met Keith Herring at the bar because I just like that bar and he liked that bar. Now here we are. You know, I love that idea. It seems like such a rare thing these days. Yeah, I think it still exists a little bit in New York because because you can walk around, you True. know, and uh, people do hang out. Uh, it's like if you're sitting at home and you're bored, you can just literally walk out, uh, you know, within three blocks, there's X amount of restaurants or bars or places, and it's fairly easy to get around. So um, I think that still does exist um, to a certain extent. But I think, 
you know, it's the perception of, of going to another place. Like, yeah, New York's a vibrant place, and I th- still think there's a lot of vibrance, vibrancy there, and it's down to the people. It's like the problem that's happening in places like New York, and it's not just New York, it's all big cities, London, Paris, Berlin, um, you know, any of these places that were historically places where people went to create art. Now, you know, mm-hmm. art is a hard thing to do. It you is. don't make a lot of money doing it. Um, if you get lucky, you know, you can. But most people do it for passion, not for, for the money. So you could go to those cities in, in the past and survive and get by. You might not be living the high life, but you could you could exist and you could do what you wanted to do. I think with the development of technology and, and global money, that's changed everything. So all cities are kind of the same today, whether it's London or Paris or New York, they're all behaving in the same way. They're all yeah, building, they're all developing, they're all using uh, international money, um, international investment. Um, so it's not really about the people that grew up there or, or come from other places that want to make it there or, or, or create something. It's, it's a little bit different now. Um, I see what you're saying. It's like, in a way, it's this concept where the world's flat now, where everyone can yeah. reach anyone. I can see the inspiration of this British artist, and I can see the inspiration of this New York artist, and I can draw inspiration from all of that. Before, it was closed off, and you really couldn't see that. And so I can see how you, how all these cities can now start to operate the same. Yeah, and it's immediate. Like, if I, you know, if I want to look, for example, I did a show in uh, Indonesia last summer in Jakarta. Wow. So now I have, I'm connected to, you know, people in Indonesia and Jakarta. So I can go on every day and look at what they're doing. I can see what their culture's like. I can see what's going on in their world. I can see the art and creativity that's going on there. And I can do that any time of the day or night that I want. So that is something that 25 years ago, you couldn't do unless you went to and visited. Visited, or if you bought, like there was one store I remember on 42nd Street that was a international um, news agents. And basically they had all the magazines and all the papers from around the world. I think it was called Hotelings. And you basically you could go in there and you said, you know, if they didn't have like the Jakarta Post, you could go and say, oh, I want to subscribe to the Jakarta Post. And they'd be like, okay, and you'd pay for it and then you'd go and pick it up every week. But you'd have to do it like that. That's you so know? interesting. So you'd have to make that effort. You'd have to know about that store. You'd have to know that you could do that. And you'd have to be interested in that place. It's like you'd have to know that guy who just traveled there. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like how you were talking about for the podcast. So you were like, tell me the punk rock story. That was crazy about how yeah. punk was named and how Vivian Westwood was involved. That was nuts. Yeah. Because her boyfriend. Was, that was, yeah. Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. 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 That was a New York thing. Yeah. I was just saying it was early 70s New York bands that actually sort of uh, were the sort of the catalyst for the punk scene in the UK. You know, people think of punk as being mostly British or English, but it was McLaren who'd come to New York. He'd seen this band or he'd heard this band called the New York Dolls who were sort of big on the scene in New York and they had a kind of a crazy sound. It was definitely like rock and roll but a little bit raw Mm -hmm. they wore crazy clothes they wore platform shoes they wore makeup they wore women's clothes and and all kinds of crazy stuff um and malcolm was with vivian westwood at the time who's an english fashion designer and she did very crazy clothes and still does um and 
she was doing this this look at the time. She had a store in the world. Uh, it's a neighborhood in London called World's End. Uh, at the end of the King's Road and she had a store there and every time she would do a different collection or a different look she would change the name of the store so I think in the early 70s it was called Live Fast Die Young and it was sort of a 50s rock and roll look mm. you know sort of like th thick crepe shoes and uh, you know qu you know like sort of the quiff hair like oh, the James I Dean hairstyle yeah. and, you know but leather sort of leather jackets like you got yeah leather jackets <laughs> that's a badass leather jacket you oh, got thanks, by the way that thing is legit it's heavy. Find that at a real punk store. Yeah. Have you seen the punk store over here off of um, uh, 18th Street? No. Dude, you got to check that out. There's a sweet-ass uh, punk rock store right there. Uh, it's right off 18th, right in that main drag, that main party area. Wow. Yeah, yeah I'm def def definitely going to check that out. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll get the name after the podcast, and I'll, I'll DM it to you. But yeah, I, I met the guy there, and they have all this memorabilia, all the jackets, all these old pins, like all the records. It was, it was wicked. I'm surprised you haven't discovered that yet. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I've only been here for three months. You know, I got a lot to I know, explore, I got to remember, you've you know? only been here for three months. Three months. That's nuts. So what's it like? like? What are your perceptions of DC so far? I love it. Yeah? Yeah, that's really great. I think the energy, it's funny we're talking about old New York. Because I'm just so fascinated, I had to get it out of New my York. system, you know. The way we're talking about it, you think it was like uh, five points in the dead rabbits. You know, it's like... <laughs> We're all walking around with mustaches. And, well, actually, in Brooklyn, they are. Back then. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they, yeah, yeah, they still Yeah, in Williamsburg, are. they're all like... They're just yeah. missing the guns. They're probably yeah. all walking around wearing the same shit. Yep. Um, yeah, I think that energy, there's that kind of energy in, in D.C., to be honest. I mean, everybody that I meet here is super um, curious and uh, open and energized, and, and it's really not about anything other than finding out new things or being interested in what people are doing. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, barriers, which is interesting. Yeah, and I there's like really that. not. There's, you can literally start your own party or your own art event like I've been doing and have it be successful. And all of a sudden everyone knows about you. It's the, get the access for entry of doing things here is so open. Yeah. It's not closed at all. There's, there's hardly any gatekeepers for anything. That, you love that, right? I, mean, I love it. But that's the way it should be. It should be like yeah. that. You know? If you have an idea and a concept, you should be able to give it a shot. Exactly. Um, yeah, and like I said, I think the New York, that was, that was the way it was. And that's the, the, the perception that people have of that city. And that's exactly what it was like. Um, you know, when I, when I moved to uh, New York, um, Tompkins Square Park, which is in the East Village, um, which is the famous park, I think it was... Um, the original um, musical Hair was set in that park. Oh. Um, but by the time I got there, it was basically a tent city. <sighs> basically, the whole park oh was people, homeless people lived in there. And, it's like, and it wasn't people that were, you know, homeless because they didn't have any money or they had mental health issues. It was people that wanted to live there, that wanted to sort of live that kind of life mm. um so the and the east village was very much uh in transition at that time the you know alphabet city like a b c d if you went over that way there was a lot of buildings that were derelict or run down or needed to be fixed up so that sort of emanated into the rest of the east village and the lower east side so um it was definitely hairy around there you know um, well it's great because i get to 
get these questions and since you lived it, you know, I, I hardly get to ask people or anyone with your experiences these questions. So in a lot of ways, one, it's like, I love the stories, you know? And then two, it's like, I get, I get that subtle validation of not going to New York, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I made yeah. a decent decision planning my roots here because there's always that sort of fetishment of, should I have moved to Brooklyn? Should I have mm. done photography there? But I love that you say you come here and that there's like this new energy because I feel that too and I really believe in it. And yeah. I even talked to artists who are really involved and essentially they're some of the biggest artists in this city who've been here for years. And even they don't know what's gonna cause that pop but it can sort of feel this bubbling under the surface yeah um i think also it's it's interesting to remember that you create your own reality or you create your own environment i mean it's more difficult in areas where it's expensive to live or the you know the the society has become money dominated like places like new york and london and and Paris and, and, and Berlin and places like that where it is more difficult for artists to survive. But um, I had somebody contact me, an artist, um, an Indonesian artist who'd seen my show in Jakarta Whoa. but actually lives in London. Whoa. And that person contacted me and was like, you know, I see that you live in New York and I'm an art, struggling artist in London and you know i've been to new york and i've been to brooklyn it seems like everybody's an artist and there's a really big scene there and i'm struggling in london so maybe if i could you know go to new york um i'd be able to do my thing in new york and i was like well you would but you know you said you made the point that everybody there's an artist and it's like well they kind of are you know i mean everybody you meet is like an artist or a writer or a musician but it's never been any different it's always been like that um so, you know, be careful about, it's like the grass is greener, like you said, or that if you go to another place that it might be better or different, you know. Um, or that you're gonna you, find this new inspiration. Like, yeah. I, think you, I think you raise a great point where it's like, it's not about where you are, it's about what you do, which is something that mm. I've been coming across with. It's like, you can create the world around you and, mm. and create these scenarios that you would rather be in. Like, if that guy's struggling in London, he'll probably still be struggling in New York, if not worse, because mm-hmm. now he's in a super foreign place. Yep. You know, so it's like, you always think that the other place is where you're gonna succeed, but it's like, no, it's, it, I like the idea where you say it's, it's literally where you are. It's what's around you. It is, you know, I think it does help. You know, you look at, we're talking about DC having sort of an energy and that is refreshing and it is, it does create a lot of, um, development artistically so sometimes that can help but um, you know for all the years that I was in New York and did the various things that I did creatively it's you can't worry about what other people are doing and you can't worry about what the scene is or what's going on or who's doing what some people do because that's the way you know they're they're, they're sort of their art is dictated or the, or the way they want to create. But if you want to create something that's individual, personal, and, and honest, you have to go inside to look outside. You know, it's like if you have a, a core of um, understanding of yourself and, and what you believe that you want to create and why you want to create it, um, then you'll satisfy certain things in your own life, you know, um, this whole thing, we've sort of come into a world now with technology and YouTube and media and celebrity. It's like, 
you know, everybody wants to make it, yeah. know, quote unquote, like as if that's a sign of success, you know? And it's like, yes, it is. But it's like success is about doing it every day. You know, Stephen Pressfield wrote this book called um, The Art of War. Um, sorry, that, that's Sun Tzu. Yeah, that's Sun Tzu. The War of Art. Ah, there we go. Yeah. And he wrote another book called... Uh, a clever name too. Doing Art professionally or something like that um and basically you know he's the guy that he was a screen illustration um, and design and print design and stuff like that. So I do a lot of that. And while I was doing that, I was sort of in transition and I started to get back into the music. You know, obviously I met mm. lots of people there and there was a big sort of English expat scene in the in New York in the oh, early wow. 90s. So like a bunch of clubs. Um, there, was, there was a club called Orange that uh, was this guy Dorian, DJ Dorian and DB used to do. And there was another one called Giant Step which was uh, two guys that started then started a record label oh, that was doing like, uh, ja um, you know, like, um, like new jazz. Yeah. Um, um, and so there was a lot of English people on that scene and I met a lot of musicians from going to those um, clubs and I started a band with a couple of guys and it didn't really last. And then I met Jason, the, the guitar player that, you know, we worked in the 12 with and uh, through a friend of mine who was a DJ, guy Malik. And uh, he introduced me to this guy, Jason Clark. And we, uh, I remember he came over to my apartment and he had his guitar case. And you can kind of tell about somebody like a musician by what they play or what their amps are or what the, mm. you know, the instrumentation is. So he brought the case in and he opened the case and it was a, a guitar called a 360 Rickenbacker, mm -hmm. um, which is similar to sort of the guitars that the, the Beatles played. John Lennon played a, um, his was actually a 330, I think. It's a slightly different size, but same style. And I think the Birds played uh, Rick's as well. And it's a, it's a great sounding guitar and it's definitely in the genre and the style that I was thinking of. So when he opened this guitar, it was like, uh, the case, it was like, oh, you know, the light <laughs> yeah. came out and it was, it was just glowing, you know, this, uh, this, uh, vintage cherry sunburst, yeah. you know, back a 360. And it was like, I was like, this is the guy, this is the guy. And we started playing. He's like, oh, what sort of songs do you want to jam on? I was like, oh, I don't know, some blue stuff. So were like, you playing guitar too or are you singing? That just, you were um, just singing. singing yeah. Oh, I mean, whoa. I played a little bit guitar, but, um, I played harmonica you know, because uh, I was really into sort of the blues and, and that sort of sound. So, you know, and he said, well, what do you want to jam on? I was like, well, you know, what, something blues or rock. He said, well, how about Bo Diddley? And I was like, in heaven, I was like, absolutely. You know, and we did some, you know, Bo Diddley and we worked on some other stuff and we did some rock stuff. And then that's how we built the band, you know. It seems like you really song. found that, like your musical soulmate in a sense. Absolutely. I, I know that feeling because I grew up a lot of my, my childhood, even for a long time was I played drums in bands and uh, I became best friends with this kid named Ian Hoppy and he played guitar and sang and we were musical soulmates like the first time we played together I'll never forget that 
I went to his his parents' house, mm-hmm. and they had, his dad was a musician, so they had like a music room. So I set up my drums, and they just they were like, all right, like they just threw me in the fire, like all right, well, why don't you just jam to this song? And so they just start playing, and it was Ian, this bass player, and I was like essentially trying out for the new drummer or whatever it was, and they just started playing and I just started playing with them. We started jamming and, and we just played the entire song. We just like kept jamming for like 30 minutes and we were like, okay, yeah, this is definitely a thing. And it was just like the vibes you kind of yeah. knew where they were going to go to next and, and where you wanted to go to was where they were going. And you kind of felt that connection of going back and forth. I know Absolutely. that feeling it's, it's such a treasured sort of feeling to have with another person. Yeah. I mean, that's why we, we, we stayed playing together for so long, 20 something years, you know, no way. Wow. Um, and it was like, basically it was, um, it was almost like we were we met in another life because it's almost like we were brothers or something, or yeah. we were two sides of the you know the same coin. It's like the stuff that we were interested in, at, in outside of music, sort of like philosophically and stuff like that. We'd talk and we uh, oh I read that book, you read that book, oh I read what about that? Yeah, you know mm. it's kind of like that. And the same thing with the music, you know when he said you know Bo Diddley and the kind of stuff you know Hal and Wolf and the people that we were seemed to be both interested in. It seems kind of like the Stones were sort of the same way, you know when. Mick Jagger and Keith Richard first started hanging out and, you know, he saw the records that he was carrying. He was like, oh, Mm. you like, oh, I have that. You know, it's kind of that kind of thing, you know. And we, uh, yeah, it was that journey with him. We never, we very rarely disagreed about, like we disagree about like, you know, nuts and bolts stuff about like maybe or the, that bass line's not busy enough or that's too busy or I, or the, I don't like what the drummer's doing there or, you know, he's like, your, your vocal part there, you need, I think you need to do that, not this. So, you know, we'd have a discussion about that, but like the core concept, like of songs, Damn, we man. knew exactly what we wanted to do. Like we had, you that's know, we, we planned it as well. It's like we, we did five different types of songs, for example. It's like, you know, okay, we need, we need a, we need a ballad. We need a mid-tempo song. We need an up-tempo. We need a real rocker. We need, you know, like a pop blues rock or something. So we had like five different types of song. So we'd always figure out like, what do we need in the set? What are we missing? What keys are we doing songs in? Like we'd work out a set so we'd never have two songs in the same key back to back. What What was the name of the band? And can I still listen to it? Um, the name of the band was The Twelve, spelt out. Um, T-W-E-L-V-E and uh, yeah it's funny because you say like technology and stuff we were never really into that so we didn't really <laughs> you know and it, we'd, we'd sell a lot of stuff at shows and very much a live band but um, I think there's maybe stuff on Bandcamp but you're like you know not that? sure there's not like a like a, like a I think there's I think there's a couple of CDs on Bandcamp and I think it's the 12 USA because there's another band somewhere in France or something see, called the Twelve. See, that's the crazy part about today in the internet and shit like that is that like literally anyone born in the last 10, 15 years could go see like the first selfie they took and yeah. it's still on Facebook. Like yeah. you can go listen to the first song you made and it's still on MySpace. Mm-hmm. So in a way that's nice. It's great. Uh, that is, it's like you have a history. It's like, you know, somebody was asking me, when I was in Jakarta, um, a friend of theirs had a recording studio and he was like, oh, you know, you want to come over and hang out? And I was like, yeah, maybe, you know. But um, he's like, well, I'd love to see pictures of you with a band. And I was like, I don't have any. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, well, I have but- them at home, but guess what? They're photographs. You know, they're <laughs> actually on paper. 
So um, when I moved to DC, I had a bunch of boxes and I actually was looking for something and I went through one of the boxes and I found a bunch of photos of the band and they were from like the, I think the first photo shoot we did, which was in, um, well, when would that have been? Like 92. And actually the drummer in the band there, you talk about people that somebody might know the drummer at that time was a guy called uh, Johnny Cragg who was in a band called Space Hog who were big in the in the 90s and they had a, an album called Resident Alien because they were all English yeah and the guy the lead singer was actually married to um uh what's the guy from uh Aerosmith's daughter oh uh Steven Tyler? Yeah. Steven Tyler's daughter. Oh, I, she did have, like, she is kind of well known. I forget her name, yeah. though. She was in, like, Lord of the Rings. For, she played oh, one of the, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like Nikki Tyler or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. God, I, how do I not remember that? Anyway, she, he was married to her, and Johnny left the 12 to join Space Hog. Um, but yeah, there's a photo shoot that we did with, uh, with him in that. It was me, Jason. No, I, Johnny, I, I, I can't help but I can't help but wonder. You're a lead singer with an English accent. You must have did pretty good uh, on the road uh, in New York, huh? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> what are you no. talking about? Did you probably killing him? I, I have a long, long-term girlfriend and uh, then wife. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, okay. Would yeah. you like me at the first day you were in New York or something? Shit, man! Like, no, not quite. I think we met in '92, uh, so actually oh. around the start of the band. Yeah. Ah, okay. So you didn't get the live that groupie experience no no it's funny because um i met her through a friend of mine who was a fashion designer who i'd known from you know when i was in fashion and he did a show at is that my phone i don't think it's either of our phones that like weird morning alarm it's yeah not me. damn i think it's mine that's okay where is it What's your alarm doing? What do you What do you got set for right now? Painting. I don't know why that went off. Ah, it's Weird. all good. It's all good. So but, what were you saying? I don't know. Anyways. Oh yeah. So yeah, the, how we met. Um, I was doing the band, but this friend of mine was doing a show, a fashion show at this club called Club USA, mm -hmm. which was a big club at the time in in Times Square, and he asked me to be one of the models. So I was in the show, and she was a makeup artist. Um, we met at that and then subsequent, subsequently I met her down the road at a club and, uh, Perfect timing. yeah. And I invited her to come to see the band play and she didn't show up Oof. and I knew why she didn't show up. So when, when, when I saw her next time, she called me, she's like, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't come to the show. She's like, I lost my wallet or, you know, my purse. And I was like, wow, that's the dog ate my homework. I was like, I know why you didn't come to the show because you thought we were going to suck. Oh. And she was laughing. She was like, "No, no, no! I really, I really, I lost my, I lost my, uh, my, you know, my purse, and we were looking for it." I was like, "That's, that's totally not the truth." And did you find out later down the road that that's what it was? That she was, was absolutely. <laughs> Dang. She maybe she was like, you know, I really like this guy, but if they, yeah. if their band sucks, I, I'm just, it's not going to work. That's what she like said. She wanted that illusion or something. She told her friends like, if if they suck, that would totally blow it. Like, and like, I'd have to tell him. I'd have to tell him that the, you know, I like you, but your band sucks. That's hilarious. So uh, yeah, so she eventually came to see us, and I guess we weren't 
that sucky. So uh, she stayed around. Hey, that's what's up, man. Congrats. Yeah, that's awesome. You. So at what point did you go from the band to becoming the, the painter or artist that I know, know of you now? What was that transition like? Um, I'd done, you know, a lot of stuff for the band through the years. Like I would do all the artwork for the flyers and the posters mm-hmm. and all the, the merchandise and stuff that we would do. Um, and I would do stuff here and there while we were doing the band, but obviously that was the focus. But as the band started to wind down, um, probably around 2011, 2012 was when things, we weren't really playing out. We were doing a lot of recording, but there really didn't seem to be a a concept of where we were going to go. We've been doing it a long time. You know, we'd been doing it 20 years by that point. Did you kind of feel like if you didn't make it then, then you weren't going to make it kind of thing? Um, it wasn't even like we were going to make it. I think we'd, we'd made it already because we'd been doing it for 20 years. You know, a lot of bands, they'd last, you might know who they are, but they last a long time. five years and then the guy's back selling shoes or working in a, you know, a, a cab driver, which is not a bad thing, but it's like, you know, it's like, it was like a vacation almost, but yeah. you, were, you were actually doing it for 20 years. I'm so curious yeah. because that's an actual career as a musician. And like, I always, I'm always curious how that plane lands, you know? Yeah. It, it, we, we, you know, obviously the goal was to do it for a living and we did to a certain extent, you know, we did have jobs on the side, um, but they were jobs that gave us a lot of time. I worked in a bar, Jason drove a, you know, sort of a, a limo for like a private company. So a lot of people like, um, Ben Vereen and Tony Randall, a lot of people on Broadway and stuff like that. So it was it was intermittent. So that way we had a lot of time to do the music. So we spent a lot of time doing it. But as you get to a certain age, it's like, do I really want to keep going out on the road? Do I still want to do this? It's, for it's and, and where's it going to go? Because yeah. again, it's like that thing in in that world, especially. I mean, there, there you do have artists that are older and make a lot of money, but they've been doing it since they were really, really young. And no, like the Stones or anybody like that, they make a lot of money every year whenever they tour. They're one of the highest grossing acts, but they've been doing it since they were tw- but when 18, they were 20. The, when they're at their height, they're one of the biggest bands in the world. So exactly. it's, it's, it's a different thing yeah. as opposed to you guys where, no offense, it was like maybe mid-tier or something. And it mm-hmm. was like, what do we do now? Yeah, and it, we we enjoyed doing it and we were a live band and we, we had really good time playing live and you know recording was fun too but it's like you get to that point where like you say it's like you know even if we had a hit it's like say somebody took something and put it on a tv show and then suddenly you're like well how do we do this you know it's like mm. a record label wants you to go on the road for but you're eight like months but you're like 40 45 yeah. and you're yeah. just kind of like wait a minute i don't even know if i want to do that yeah yeah do i do i want to go on the road for that amount of time and it's like not just once once you start it you've got to keep going you know if you was that hard for you like to kind of come to that actualization with, with the band especially your your musical soulmate yeah yeah it was it was very difficult um but it's you have to be a realist as well and you know, I haven't stopped doing music. And that's something that, that book um, that Stephen Pressfield wrote talked about. He said, you know, don't be afraid of moving to something else if if the other thing has run its course. You know, mm-hmm. it's like if you, you know, you did one thing and it's, you know, you want to be something else. You want to do, I don't know, you want to be an actor or something or whatever you want to do. Or you want to start, you know, like a nonprofit or don't be afraid of that because things do have a, have a life and it's like you don't you shouldn't keep doing it because that's what you've been doing 
all that time because then yeah. you're not really you're not true to yourself yeah. because we grow and evolve as humans. Like the Absolutely. thing you like 20 years ago is not the yeah. thing you're going to like today. My passion for music mm-hmm. was not the passion I have today. Also, probably wasn't that good. But yeah. Like, but also it's like we within then we still change and become different people. And it's like, it's okay to chase those things. And a lot of people can easily get bogged down with that thought, that weird inner monologue of, you know, no, that's who I am. I yeah. identify as a musician. So you get stuck in that you frame define, and all of a sudden you're this yeah. like 50 year old dude playing at a bar and it's just, it's just sad. Yeah, it is. It's like you're playing for the, you know, that was one of the things that Jason always said. Even when we were playing a lot, he's like, I don't want to play for the sake of playing because it's, it's like you're, you're not doing yourself any service and you're not doing the, the fans a, a service yeah. because people get bored. You know, it's yeah. like it's repetitive after a while. Um, so, um, but you know. Man, did it feel good when it was good, though, I bet. It oh, was. That's, I mean, that's back, being on stage. Oh, it's such a feeling, man. It's so good. It's, yeah, there's nothing like it, you know. I mean, it's like people say to me now, you know, oh, do you miss playing music? And I'm like, yeah, every single day. And I do. I mean, I still play. I play guitar and I, I write and I, you know, I sing. And Jason and I talk all the time. He, he actually ended up moving to Spain. The house, when I moved to Brooklyn, um, we'd, we just started playing. And his parents owned a house in a neighborhood called Fort Greene. And he's like, oh, there's an apartment in the building that's available. So I was like, that's great. We can practice here. We can run the band from here, which we did. So we lived in that building for about 24 years, um, which is unheard of in New York yeah. to live in the same building. In fact, they still exist for 24 years. Well, it's in the historic district, so it's a brownstone. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful neighborhood. It's a super expensive neighborhood now. So, so I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to get to it. At what point did you make that transition and like pick up your... your and- and take the painting and the and the illustration and the drawing seriously. Like, what did you did you discover it? Were you or were you, did you kind of get like an inkling where you were like, I want to be a painter. Where I feel like this is like the next move for me. Well, like I said, when I was at uh, Art Foundation and the tutor said, you know, you should be a painter, and I was like, yeah, you know, I, one day I will. I mean, I had that in my head. I was like, That's so crazy. I was like, I can be a painter when I'm sixty, but you can't be a fashion designer or start out being a fashion designer or a, a musician at sixty. You can, so but there's there's a there's a a, a certain you know sell by date mm-hmm. on on that career wise. Um, so basically, I'd sort of thought about it, and when the band was winding down, I was. I had a lot of spare time, so I started drawing and painting at home. You know. And my wife said, you know, you're making a mess in the apartment. There's paint on the floor. You need to get a studio. So I was like, okay. So I went out and found a little studio, which was literally a little studio. It was like a cubicle (laughs) uh, in this art space called Brooklyn Art Space in uh, Gowanus in in Brooklyn. And, but it got me started and I went in every day. It was like, I'd read that Pressfield book around that time. What was the name of that book again? Uh, War of Art? Yeah, The War of Art. But is that the one you're directly referencing right now? Yes. I, I want to I yeah. check that one out. Yeah, it's really good. Stephen Pressfield. And he was like, you know, do it like a job almost, but not in that way. So I would go in Monday through Friday and I would work a little bit every day. And uh, then I found another studio that was, you know, sort of double the size of the one that I had there, I'm which was in up. Sunset Park. And um, yeah, sort of was there for about five years and really um, developed a lot during that time. You know, there was a foundation there called NARS Foundation 
that uh, did residency programs for artists from all over the world in the mm. US and they would come through every three to six months. So there was this constant sort of rotation plus studio artists that were there all the time from New York. So you get to meet a lot of interesting people, a lot of cool ideas and stuff. So it was definitely a, a really good experience. And I was there about five years. And then um, that was when, you know, last year, decided to move south and uh, looked for this place, uh, looked for a studio. And my wife found this place on, I think it might have been on Craigslist. <laughs> and I'd actually, I'd actually contacted them about a year before because we were thinking about moving down here and I didn't get a reply. And then I was, we were down here and I had a week to look for a studio. Um, and it was like the Thursday of the, that, that week. And uh, she said, you'd need to call these guys, Fifth, uh, O Street. It's so, so I called them and, and, or I emailed, Marty got back to me and yeah. came and looked at it on the Friday. I'll take it. It's so wild to me that this is, I would say it's all new, but your art seems a lot more mature than as long as you've been doing it. Or like, it seems so much more developed than I think someone who would have just started from scratch. But now talking to you, I realize that you have a deep history of, of art and using your hand and, mm -hmm. and being creative. And so it all makes sense now. I'm like, oh, that's how, like, like it wasn't just, like, you're not just like a lead singer who decided to become a, this insanely talented artist. Like you were that the entire time. You just kind of decided to lean into it. Yeah, I mean, even as a as a, as a kid, I was always interested in art, um, and just discovering artists and stuff like that. There was a place I remember. Um, I grew up in Manchester in the north of England, and at that time, there wasn't a lot of places that were new that had new art mm. in a place like Manchester. You know, this is I'm talking early mid '80s. Um, and this place opened called The Corner House. And it was pretty revolutionary at the time. They had, they had a restaurant and cafe in there. They had a movie theater across the street that they would show independent movies. Crazy. And then they had a, an art gallery that would show modern artists, but also uh, 20th century artists as well, but a lot of new artists as well mm -hmm. up and coming. So I would go to that place and just hang out and just sort of wander around the gallery and looking at art and stuff like that. And that in turn made me look into other kind of artists and stuff like that, that I was interested in or stuff that I'd seen, you know, I became very interested in, um, people like, uh, Alberto Giacometti, who did these sculptures, very thin sort of figurative sculptures, very thin people. That, that's really sort of spoke to me. And then people like Francis Bacon. Well, it makes sense because a lot of your work, there are people's bodies in them, which makes sense considering your fashion design background. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely always interested in the figure. You know, to me, mm. the figure is an interesting um, concept because it's it can be so many different things can, to different right? people. And it's not, it's not purely about uh, the individual, you know, it's, it, it can be expressed in so many ways. You know, I felt actually when I first started painting in New York and I was doing figurative, people wouldn't say it, but you could feel that it was almost like looked down on because it's like, oh, figurative is so 20th century or so dated. So that's, that's like the proper way to, for me to classify, I don't want to classify it, but it's figurative. Um, I sort of call it figurative abstract okay. because there's, there's definitely a, an, ab, a, a, an essence of abstraction, which I'm there definitely is. interested in because, you know, obviously 
my my sort of art interest. I mean, obviously, I like the the, the classic artists, you know, uh, Titian and Caravaggio and Michelangelo mm. and people like that. But um, sort of late eighteen uh, hundreds impressionists, I was always very interested in. You know, people ah. like uh, Degas, Monet, yeah. Manet, um, and even Seurat and people. And prior to that, people like Turner, who were, some people would say were maybe sort of the first painter that sort of had an impressionist feel. Mm. Um, as a landscape, English landscape painter. But then into the 20th century, I was very influenced by people like uh, Gustav Klimt and uh, Paul Klee and uh, Egon Schiele. Well, the thing about uh, a figurative stuff like you do is in your, your mix of abstraction, I think is really mm -hmm. fascinating is that I think when normal person, not someone who thinks about art like we do or anyone who's affiliated with it, when they look at abstract art, they kind of are lost and they kind of sit there saying, why is this worth $5,000? Mm -hmm. But I feel like when the way you approach it and you put these the figure in there in your unique way and they're always in these really nice poses that are just kind of interesting, uh, I think it kind of gives it like a, something to latch on to. Like it, it makes it make sense for people and then then we can kind of look at everything else around it. At mm -hmm. least for me it does. Like it helps me a lot in guiding because – even I get lost sometimes in, in, in very abstract things, but the yeah. fact that you put that visible, identifiable thing on there, in a sense, it guides you. And then once you look at the scale of it and then the detail of it, you're kind of like, okay, I can see why this is like, this is clearly great, you know? Yeah. I feel like that's at least what I see. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the figure was always important to me, obviously doing fashion and draw illustration and drawing the figure. I always like the life drawing classes. It was just uh, such a fantastic experience to be able to sort of connect with that in a, you know, a linear way. Mm. Um, but also it's about, for me, it's about connecting with humanity. It's like basically this existence that we're in, which is, you know, flesh, form, three dimension. We're here for a reason, right? We're, we're put here or we decide to come here at this time or in this in this dimension for a reason. And it's like, for me... You know, we explore the world through our bodies. Um, you know, we, we, we may be a spirit or a soul that, that, that comes and goes, but in this plane, we exist in, in flesh, in matter. Yeah. So for me, that the figure is all-encompassing, that it has a, 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 you know, a, a connection to the past and to the future because people will always be around hopefully as, as, as beings, whether we assimilate or change or become connected to technology. Yeah. I think the important thing is always to connect to the analog and to um, what it means to be, uh, you know, in a body because that's, that's why we're here. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Cause no matter what else pops up or develops around us, no matter what point in time you are, we all have the figure, we all have our own naked body and that's the common thread that we can all relate to in a way. Absolutely, and it's it's about shape, form, and structure as well as abstraction. Because depending on how you uh, show the body, you can, it can be you can make it very abstract. Depending on how you you know mm. pose the figure or what aspects of it that you show, um, and you know in some ways even today people have a reaction to figurative. And I think it's you know I do some clothed and some you know nude figures um and it's not that exclusive one way or the other 
Um, but people have a sort of still even today a weird connection with nude because of the sort of certain taboos that maybe that are lodged in our heads somehow, yeah. um, which is interesting in this day and age, right? You think that people would be on that, but they're not. In We're fact, not. it's even more apparent today for some reason. You know, it's uh, when I was in Jakarta, the, there was a journalist from the Jakarta Post interviewed me and he first thing he said was, I see that all your uh, figures are, are nude. Um, is that a sexual thing? And it was like, <laughs> I'd never even thought about that. I was like, wow, because that culture is very different, you know, than ours. More, probably more modest or something. A little bit modest. I mean, it's definitely, they're very, they're open, but there's definitely a difference. Uh, a sort of a cultural difference there. I yeah. mean, it is obviously a Muslim country, but there's also a, a big Christian population there mm -hmm. and they, they do coexist fairly uh, well together, which is great. It's you know? always been taboo for showing the body. It, it's rare that like where it's seem like it seems normal, you know, especially depending on how you show the body to Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that, that, that that's the way it is. And, and I understand that, you know, but for me, when he asked that, it, that wasn't the case. It's like, I'm not trying to be provocative. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to, you know, rattle anybody's cage or yank anyone's chain. It's basically for me, when you look at the, you know, there's, there's certain things you can show with fabric or the folds when, when you're doing a clothed figure, but there's also a lot you can do with line, shape and form when the figure is nude, because then it becomes about the shapes. It's way different. It's way different. It's different and there's so game. much more you can do with that, um, for me personally. And also, because I use color and the abstraction, that allows me to work those two things together fairly, mm. uh, you know, sort of in combination together. What's that process like for you when you approach like a, when you're paintings like I saw in your studio the week, what's your approach? Do you draw the figure first and then do you do the abstraction or? Um, I've done both. Um, in the early days I would do the background, which was sort of layered, these layered colors. Um, and then I would sort of draw the figure on top. Um, because I, the whole idea was to give the sort of, the figures are transparent. Mm. So you can see the background through them. So the whole idea was this, I had this concept of, um, creating a dimension in uh, across the plane. So obviously you have the 2D surface of the canvas, yeah. but I wanted to cut across through into the canvas. So I would do these layers of colors oh, wow. and then the figure is transparent. So it's almost like you can see through because it's, it's about connecting with time and space and dimension as well philosophically i'm thinking about these things as well when i'm working mm. is that uh you know obviously we're all made of of, of you know flesh and bone and, and skin and um but as far as matter is concerned in in this dimension pretty much we're all made of the same stuff you know yeah. it's like if you get to the atomic level you know trees are very similar we're to all molecules. Yeah. Are, yeah. We're all the same, just different structure. Yeah. You know, it was that song, we are all made of stars. I mean, it's <laughs> true. You know, we're all made of the same stuff. So, um, I sort of have that concept as well about sort of transcending the, uh, the time space dimension that we're in as well, but thinking about reality and form and space and time all at the same time. 
Um, Are you still operating under that concept or have you kind of started with a new sort of concept of your approach? Um, I still have that in, in mind. Um, some of the figures, um, what I've started to do is do them in sort of um, contrast colors from the background. Maybe some of the background drips through. Mm. So there is an element of transparency with the background. Um, I sort of moved more towards having the figures slightly different. Uh, maybe a slightly different color than the background just because it it lends this interesting visual uh, look that I've sort of been thinking about because like I said you know being influenced by abstract artists and especially by mid-century uh, 20th century uh, abstract artists obviously um, and into the 60s you know I, I'm interested in people like uh Rauschenberg and Cy Twombly and, and, and stuff like that. But then into the 60s, color field theory. Um, What's that? Um, the, where you see the very big, bold color um, canvases. Maybe it's like a red, a blue, and a green, and they're huge. And Or Mark Rothko, who oh, does yeah. work like that. It's, it's like people are just dumbly attracted to them. Like, yeah, there was this whole theory in Joseph Albers, um, who was an artist and a professor, wrote a whole sort of treatise on on color and how to you know use different colors in different ways and how you can even he would this you can make your own little version of that where you cut out little colored squares and you lay them on top of each other and you can see how you know having purple and green next to each other or overlaid as opposed oh. to purple and yellow like how it changes the dynamic of each of the colors and what it says. Mm. So I did a lot of, you know, reading about stuff like that, but I was always interested in work like that. Like I said, even as a, as a, as a child, I would see work like that and it would, I'd have that reaction. You said a lot of people have to abstraction as a child. I was like, well, how is that? How is that art? Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a giant red canvas or it's got a smudge of yellow, but it's like, it's, it's an existential thing. You know, they're, they're there's a there's a reason behind there's a philosophy behind the work as well, um, and that's what you don't get when you just see something hanging like that. that yeah, that piece is so valuable. Like that's why gallery openings are so good to go to. Where you can ask the artist about these things because yeah. you won't know these things in the write up. Might not even tell you these things, but when you ask someone and ask about why you did that, why you did that, all of a sudden the dots start aligning. Everything starts making sense. Yeah, but it's also it's also valid to have a confused or. Uh, a negative reaction to art, uh, 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 you know, sure. that's that, you know, it's just as important. I'm not saying, you know, everybody should understand art and, and, and if they don't, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's like, for, no, it's not for everyone. Not everyone's no. art is for everyone. Absolutely not. You know, it's like, if you, if you have a reaction to color field theory or you see a painting like Mark Rothko and you're like, that's ridiculous. I don't like that. It's like, great. You know, All that's right. good. I mean, it's, I think, Whatever you do, you should always get a strong reaction. We talk, we talk about that in music. If people say, oh, you know, that was kind of nice. That's the worst thing you want to hear. You, you want, want people to, love to say, it it. love it or hate it. Or like, you guys suck. Or that's amazing. You know, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of good. That's boring. How is it? Oh, it's all right. Oh, shit. Yeah. It's like that's exactly. worse than saying it was bad. Exactly. Yeah. Don't say anything. Don't say nice. So, yeah, basically... It's 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 good to have a reaction like that. You can dislike something or or, or say it's not valid. I feel in, like you don't your, get reactions like that. I feel like probably most people get what you do, or they not maybe not get it, but they at least think, they know it's good. Like when people, I feel like most people look at work like that's good. Yeah, um, 
I, I it's just create work that I want people to appreciate. And it's about, because for me, it's about, like I said, all the stuff that I've done and thought about over my life. It's like, it's an exploration and um, um, sort of my version of the world in a way. It's like how I see the world. It's like, obviously, I don't walk around the world seeing like colors dripping down, <laughs> which would be kind of cool. That would be but cool. That would be, I don't know about, or something you know, like, like a, a full lifetime of LSD trips would not be a <laughs> permanent LSD yeah. trip. Dude. Yeah. So, but it's like visually, it's like, it's a perception of the world. It's like how maybe I see my dreams or, you know, um, in a sort of uh, non-waking state, you know. And for me, like I said, it's also about an exploration of the what we can't see mm-hmm. as well, the seen and the unseen. You know, the, the show in Jakarta was called Transformation Through the Veil. And so it was this idea of like seeing through into other dimensions or, or seeing other concepts or ideas mm-hmm. you know so that's where bringing in stuff like you know the the color field and the and the abstraction it 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 changes that perspective a little bit it takes you off in a yeah, slightly just knowing different about direction. these thoughts that someone crafted there it's like a, it's like a theory it's like their own personal theory that this guy made up and then he wrote it all down and it's like oh this is his approach to looking at it like it's cool to know about these things yeah Absolutely. You know, it's like this guy mastered, if not master, but you know he's an expert at this. It's it'd be like you for after singing for twenty years. If I didn't care about your thoughts about how to sing, I'm probably stupid for not at least considering them. You know? Yeah, and it's like all that stuff it takes a lot of effort, you know. And it's not like about patting yourself on the back, but pe- I th- think people. Well, maybe they don't. I don't know. But I'm, I think a lot of times people think, you know, especially in music, and we deal with that even when we were doing it. People think. Oh, you know, you just, you know, you go in the studio and you record a song and that's it. And it's like hours and hours and hours. It's an extremely mm-hmm. laborious process. I mean, you can do, we've done live recordings in the studio, which are a lot of fun. But there's certain techniques and stuff that you want to do if you want to get it to a certain point where you have to spend a lot of time. And even if it's not time in the studio, it's time rehearsing, it's time practicing on the songs you know, forming everything, making sure everybody understands where, where you're coming from. And it's the same with art. You need to spend a lot of time. And I spent probably, since I started doing this in 2012, 2013, um, you know, I, I really went into it with, I need to put in a specific amount every day, at least this amount of wow. time a day, just, you know, whatever's happening. Yeah. Do you have a routine? I do. I'm here five days a week. I'm here Monday to Friday and I'm usually here in the afternoons. You know, I probably, I try to do about six hours a day. That's, that's good. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, I'd like to do eight, but eight's kind of a lot. I'm so envious of painters and having the self-contained creation as a photographer. It's, it's, it's different, especially for Mm. someone who likes to focus on the human form and stuff. I have to rely on someone else. Yeah. Which is which just feels so weird to me. Like I wish I could just summon the most perfect girl at all times, you know, and just and just be able to dress her and go out and take photos yeah. every day. But it's, I can't and I hate that. I hate that blockage so much because I'm not really into street photography personally. Mm-hmm. I'm into the, the body and the form and people and yeah, it's it, I'm so envious that you can just go and do your thing. For me to go and do my thing, it requires me setting up mm-hmm. and the inspiration and where it's like oh, sometimes it just gets so taxing, man. No, I totally understand because in in fact I had sort of a similar 
not dilemma, but you know, when I was starting to do the figure and stuff, obviously I was drawing and, and painting myself because I was around. Yeah. Um, but then as it developed, it's like, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to do more of other people and maybe group shots and, uh, you know, group paintings where there's maybe two or three people in, in, uh, you know, the setup, but that's an organizational thing that you have to then engage in a whole, like, when can you be here? You know, not like that. No, that leg that, no, it's not, you know, and then suddenly you spent six hours and you, you got like maybe one image that you can work with. So I basically came up with this concept of doing the how I get the figure is basically I set up a camera in the studio and in the beginning I would video put it on video and I would just walk around and work and then I would go back and have a look and then if I saw like a pose or an in-between part I would take a freeze frame of that and then I would use that image as the inspiration for the for the figure and then as it developed then I would start to do different poses and I think up poses in my head so I already know what I want to do or okay what do I want for this one I've got a guy seated in that one so I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that and because thinking of a pose and actually seeing it are two different things. You know, it's Absolutely. like, I can't tell you how many times I've told a model, do this pose. And in your mind, like, this is yeah. so perfect. But then she does it and you're like, ooh, this is awkward. Yes. You know, it, exactly. it, it didn't translate. Yeah. Yeah. And I still, you know, I do that. I had a painting that I'm doing right now that I just started. And yesterday, I, um, you know, I was doing the video for it. And I had this idea that I would sort of arch and have my shoulders up and my head down. And it looked like nothing. It looked terrible. Yeah, you it was can't. Like, it look, I looked like a lump. You know, I was like, yeah, that's going to look awesome on the canvas. <laughs> So I did a bunch of other ones and I came up with, with something that worked. That's but good. it was like, yeah, the one that was like, yeah, that's the pose was definitely not the pose. Yeah, right. It's always so weird how that works out. Because yeah. I mean, you've probably spent way more hours than I have looking at form and drawing form or clothes under bodies and stuff. And so, yeah, I can imagine how for you, it's even different for you. Yeah, so cool. well, they would talk about that at Kingston. You know, when I was at college, they would say, you know, you have an idea about a garment or an outfit and yeah, it looks great in your head. And then it might even look great on paper and we'll pick it and then you have to make it and then when you come to the making phase and you start to make it and it looks terrible don't be afraid of changing the design and then being able to explain why because we will not penalize you for changing it if you've thought it through and you can justify and back up well i changed this because it wasn't working and this looked better that's such a weird thing that, that happens and i yeah. love that approach but it's such a weird thing that like we deal with that it's such a weird nuance that you would never think about it's, it's, it's such yeah because a- you think that if you come up with it in your head it's going to be perfect right yeah it's like oh it makes sense it yeah. has to work right yeah like ugh, nope sorry see that's the difference about you know three dimension and and in the thought dimension you know whatever dimension that is is different from the one we live in so when you see it in that one it makes perfect sense and then in this one maybe it doesn't quite yeah so because it's slightly different right it's not it's not um it's not form yeah it's like our perceptions of how it forms in the real life are different than the one in your head absolutely which which is just it sucks but well it's why why dreams are different from reality it's like they're they're like a they're like a slightly off version of reality, like weird things happen or, you know, you meet people you haven't seen forever or the house that you live in looks nothing like the yeah. house you live in. It's, it's like it's a way smaller or something. Yeah. Or it's like, I wish it seems different. Yeah. yeah. Or people that you've never met before all live in your house and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I, mean, I think that even happens just even with 
thinking about the future and where you want to be in the future. Like when I think of, when I thought of myself two years ago, I would never have pictured this. This wasn't, you know, the way I thought of it in the way yeah. in my head and the way it played out is so different. And it's like the same way it comes into your art or your drawing or photograph. It's like, it's going to be different and you kind of just got to roll with it. And you can't be like this weird control freak about it. You just kind of have to like adapt and, and figure it out on the way in a weird way. Absolutely. And it's good to have a, have a plan or an idea yeah. you know, in, in life. But I think it's also really important to, to go with it as well, because it's like that whole thing, fate or, you know, destiny. And, and for certain people, maybe that's, that's true, you know, yeah. or if they have a very strong concept, you know, somebody like, I don't know, like Napoleon or Alexander the Great, you know, <laughs> they know I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to be the emperor of France. You yeah. Know? Um, it's like, yeah, if you've got that, that's your ultimate thing. But for most people, you want to go with the flow because you have a concept and things do change. That's good. That's okay. It's like, you know, I thought I'd never leave New York. You know, when I when I got there. Yeah, I could I imagine like, that. I love this place. I actually went for a, a summer before the year before I graduated with a friend of mine who was also at Kingston. Johnny Chung and I, we came to New York for like three and a half, four weeks and it was like the hottest summer for 45 years that year. It was like a hundred and something degrees Fuck. every day. They had a garbage strike. There was like oh. trash was piled up like mountains all over the city. And I was like, yeah, this is like the best city in the world. And he was like, I hate this place. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, you know, it's a completely opposite uh, experience. But we were both there at the same time. And I was like, yeah, you know, let's, let, I'll go with it, you know. So, uh, you know, when I ended up there, it was very, very happy. But things evolve. I thought I'd never leave there. And now I'm in D.C., you know, and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I bet like, you never imagined that, right? Like, God. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I've visited, obviously, for many, over the last few years, um, many, many times. Um, my cousin lives uh, in McLean, so visited here a lot. My wife's family live in Northern Virginia. So pretty much for the last 20-odd years, I've been coming down here. But never really thought about moving down here. And then probably in the last like five or six years, we were like, hmm, maybe it's time to leave New York, you know. So we sort of had it in, in mind. And like I said, Jason, um, where, where we lived, decided that um, he wanted to sell the building and they wanted to move. They wanted to leave New York as well. So wow. um, that was my fault, actually, because we had a recording session um, that both of us turned up to woefully unprepared. I hadn't really done a lot of work vocal on my vocal parts and he hadn't really done a tremendous amount of work on his guitar parts and the, the session sucked. And I was basically like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I was like, I'm tired of this city. You know, I'm done with this place. Blah, blah, you just blah, kind blah. of felt over. So I had a whole thing with him after the after the, the session and he came back to me a couple of weeks later and he was like, you know what? I thought about what you said and I really took it to heart and I'm, I'm going to sell the building. I'm going to move out of New York. You're like, damn like, it. <laughs> I was like, no, I was like, that's cool, man. You know, go with it. So uh, I, but I think that's how big decisions are made. It's, it's, it's like a moment and then you have that feeling and then all of a sudden that feeling explodes in a weird way. It's like, you don't see the atom happening, but the atom creates like a nuclear explosion within you. And all of a sudden you're like, nope, this is what I'm doing next. Yeah. It touched a nerve or it touched a chord, yeah. you know, um, pun intended, you know, it's like, uh, it's, I think we'd both, we'd not vocal, you know, verbalized it to each other, but we were both going through the motions and that was basically where we'd gotten to we both uh, you know we're spending a lot of money in the studio it's not cheap to be in there you know um and it was just like w what are we doing you know what are we doing musically what are we doing 
life-wise, you know, where is this going? Are we still going to be doing this in 10 years and being like, it's going to, if it's miserable now and we're not, we've not done the prep, what's it going to be like in 10 years? So it was sort of, I think we both sort of came to that realization yeah. when he said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about selling the house and, uh, you hey, know, man. I think I want to move to Spain. Thanks. Wow. That's wild. I mean, things happen for a reason, but Noel, we do have to wrap up here. Okay. Uh, is there anything uh, coming up or anything that you want people to know about? Any? Um, well, my work is now in 1111 Gallery. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Nicola Charles over at 1111 Gallery uh, has uh, got some work in there right now, and she seems to love the work, which is great, um, which is over on uh, Florida Avenue Northwest. And uh, we're actually trying to put together a meet the artist night awesome um, which we're looking at it was supposed to be maybe february 27th but i don't i think that's probably a little close so it's probably mm -hmm. going to be march 5th so we'll we'll be doing that um, sweet i think and uh and i think then there's open studios here at o street in april the 18th so if people want to come by and check out what i'm doing at the studio 52 o street yeah definitely if, if you're if you're listening to this and you got this far thank you but also yeah. definitely come by and check out the studio and your space yeah there's so many great artists in this building and you know uh amir here at om has some great artists that come in and there's kelly tolls and eric ulier and you know there's a bunch of morton fine art there's some really really great stuff in here and of course you every week <laughs> doing your podcast i'm just a visitor though <laughs> yeah but it's a great energy i mean bruce brings a great energy here it really does thank you thank yeah. you well no well, man it's been a, it's been a pleasure it's been an honor chatting with you man well thank you thanks for yeah. having me all right guys well that's it I shouldn't hit the table. That's it. That's the angle. Peace out. All right. Thanks, man. Whew, dude, I got to piss. And we were talking for like two hours.